Uh, good morning once again. Um, I'm going to read uh, probably what's the, one of the most famous uh, passages of scripture in the Bible. Um, on page six of the bulletin, if you'd like to follow along, Psalm 23, that is. I'll give you some time to get to it. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think most of you know that Duke and Paula are the proud parents of their third child. Nicole was born, I believe, this past Monday. And uh, everybody is doing well. And uh, it was expected that uh, Paula would be giving birth there Monday since she was induced. And Duke then uh, provided uh, some options for the pulpit during this week and the next week. So we want to keep them in prayer and pray for their adjustments, those of you who have gone through the, uh, the joys of having children know that within the first couple weeks, especially, there's a lack of sleep. Maybe that was one of the reasons why Duke preached on rest this pa that past week. He was kind of preparing himself and Paula for what was needed. But um, anyway, it's a privilege for me to be here. My name is Chuck Garriott. Uh, I'm not one of the pastor pastors here at the church, except that uh, this is where Debbie and I uh, regularly worship, and sometimes uh, because of my work, I'm often gone and traveling, but uh, it's always a privilege to be here, and it's a privilege for me to have an opportunity to open up the Word. The passage before us is one of the most familiar passages, I think, that uh, the world is familiar with, and I think it's appropriate for us to look at it, but before we go any further, why don't we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us a wonderful morning and an opportunity to worship you, an opportunity to be still and quiet, even though it's only for an hour or so. Uh, thank you for, for the worship that we are in the midst of, for those who have been leading. Thank you for speaking to us through your word and for your Holy Spirit that comes and helps us better understand your word and how it's to be applied to our lives. We do pray that as we look at this particular passage that you would help us, help us within our own lives, help us to better understand how it, um, how it speaks to us in all of our circumstances. Help us to understand what it means to be under a most glorious and great shepherd. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Some of you have, I'm sure, gone through a certain book this past summer. It's what you might have referred to as your summer reading. Now, maybe you didn't have time. Maybe you were too busy. But 
you know what I'm speaking about when people often at the beginning of summer, like back in the spring, you'll start hearing reviews about these are some of the options you might consider in terms of, of your summer reading. Well, even though we're past the summer, I'm going to bring a few books to your attention, if I may, that even though they weren't books that I read this past summer, but were books that spoke to me over the years. One was a book called Endurance. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the story of Ernest Shackleton, who was this uh, explorer that back in oh, a little bit before World War I, took an expedition down to Antarctica and unsuccessfully uh, crossed the South Pole at that time. Later on he did, but his ship was stuck in the midst of the ice, and the story goes on about what they had to endure over this long period of time to get the the crew off the ship and then find their way back um, back to, to the ocean where there was an ice and then the incredible journey. It was an exhausting experience and if you want a good read, endurance is perfect. Maybe some of you have read about Charles Lindbergh, who's another story of someone who went through a tremendous amount of endurance as he made the first flight from the United States across to France. Uh, and it was some 33 hours of flying. Now that doesn't, I mean that in some ways, of course, sounds like a long flight. The longest flight I've ever been on uh, in a, what, 747 or whatever the jets are called, was maybe 18 hours. But this was 33 hours across the Atlantic. Before he started his journey, though, he was awake for 24 hours. So that by the time he was in the middle of the 33 hours, he was so incredibly exhausted that he was hallucinating. And he began to see ghosts moving around the plane, even though they didn't really exist. I don't know the last time you experienced that kind of exhaustion. And then there's the other story, and this is one of my favorites. It's called The Long Walk. There was actually a movie uh, produced by or uh, in regards to this particular uh, book. Slavomir Rowicz was a Polish soldier back in World War II, and in 1939, as the Russians were coming west and the Germans, I guess, were going east, he got caught in the middle of that, was captured by the Russian army, taken to Moscow, placed on trial, and sentenced 25 years in Siberia, where he was then taken with hundreds of others, and he would spend pretty much the rest of his life there. And six others, or seven others, decided that they weren't going to spend the 25 years in Siberia, and decided to escape. In one snowy blizzard, they were able to leave the Siberian uh, camp, and they made their way, now think about this, to British India. That was a 4,000-mile walk that they did in a year. And the story, the long walk, gives you the details of what they went through. And what was somewhat noteworthy was after this exhausting time within their lives, and again, and only half, I believe, made it to India, they talk about the degree of exhaustion where they they actually slept for a month before they were able to come out of the incredible uh, ordeal that they had experienced. Have you ever felt so exhausted 
that you could sleep or that you actually slept for a month. Now, as you'll recall, last week, Duke did preach on the topic of rest, the Sabbath. And as I was thinking through this particular opportunity, knowing that he was going to be speaking on what I'll call the macro version of rest and the Sabbath, I thought that Psalm 23 would provide for us a micro version of the topic of rest. And looking at and examining Psalm 23, I would like you to join me this morning in looking at some of the details of what it means for us as Christians, as believers, to experience the degree of rest that God has for his people. Those of you who have surrendered your life to Christ, whether you were a young child in high school, college, post-college, maybe only a couple years ago, as you think about your relationship with Christ, as you think about what it means for you to belong to the shepherd that is spoken about here in Psalm 23, I would like you to examine not only what David says here, but ask yourself the question, do you experience the full extent what is given to us here in this passage? As you know, I think that Psalm 23 was given to us by King David, that means it was written some 3,000, roughly speaking, 3,000 years ago. So for us to benefit from what God's spirit was doing in a person's life then and do it now is really an amazing thing. But as you'll recall, David was king of Israel. He was a shepherd himself. He knew this, what, what shall we say, a earthly life, right? Earthy meaning that you know, working with your hands and being with animals and sheep and all the things that go along with it, spending a large portion of your time outside in the elements, in the rain, in the hot sun, in the cold, sleeping out there at night. Some of us like camping for a period of time, but would you want to do that for a long period like David did? So he was used to that kind of environment. So when he speaks about the Lord being his shepherd, He's talking about something that's very, very dear to his life in regards to that kind of an environment. And so, as we look at this passage, we are given, in essence, what I will call, 3,000 years later, a gospel view of what it means for us to rest. Now, as you'll recall, David was referred to there in the beginning of Luke as the one that Jesus would be taking the throne over, in essence. That he would be, in essence, that is, that this, this king, this Messiah that has come, would sit on the throne of his father David, the angel Gabriel told, told Mary back there in Luke chapter 1. And so as we think about Psalm 23 this morning, I want you to think about it from that perspective. One Old Testament commentator by the name of Delich says this, Psalm 23 presents a picture a picture of being in the presence of the Lord, our shepherd, the guide, the provider, the protector, in pictures of fresh and tender grass where one lies at ease and rest and enjoyment uh, are combined. 
it is a resting dwelling place, specifically an oasis, verdant spot in the desert where the weary finds a most pleasant resting place. It is a place our shepherd provides gentle leading. So my question for you this morning is, do you experience that kind of gospel rest? Do you experience the depth of all that God has for his people? So what does it mean for us to experience this rest? How can we be qualified in some ways? Well, I think the, the writer here, the psalmist, gives us some very specific things. First of all, he tells us about the condition of rest. Now, as I mentioned to you, David, who is one that understood difficulties and trials, uh, was, was a man who was well prepared to speak about the Lord being his shepherd. If you think about David's life, you can, you can, you'll, you'll center quickly upon the fact that in some ways, he doesn't seem like the right guy to be talking about green pastures, quiet waters, etc. Because his life, to such a great extent, was in turmoil, full of tension. Tensions he experienced when he was under the reign of Saul, King Saul, someone who hated him. Have you ever been really hated and pursued by those who hate you? Have you ever experienced the dynamics of what it means to be a warrior, someone who sheds the blood of others, and David was well known for that? Have you ever thought about David's desires in regards to wanting to build the temple and the fact that God said to him, this great desire that you have will go unfulfilled. Now, that's a very righteous thing, I would say. In other words, it's a good thing that David would want to do something for God, and God said, no, you're not going to do it. Or maybe another aspect of David's life, in terms of what I would call the condition of the rest that he speaks about, is his personal struggles. I mean, let's face it. As you go through second, uh, first and second Samuel, and you read about the details of this man's life, he provides an incredible, incredible story for soap operas. I mean, really, the affairs, the murders, the, all the junk in life, David lived out. He thought about he premeditated it, and then he acted on it. So it's a really weird picture in some ways that here we've got this guy that is, that is so, so engulfed in turmoil and ugliness, the ugliness of life. And yet, in the midst of all that, he experienced the gospel. And I believe that in some ways, we, we're not always, even as believers, in touch with what it means to be really broken. I think there's a tendency for us to say, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to push that to the side. And in doing so, we deny ourselves, I believe, the benefit and the beauty of being under our shepherd. I don't know if any of you are familiar with an author, he's deceased, Henry Nowen, who 
uh, wrote a lot of different books, a very well-known Roman Catholic priest. He wrote the book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, and in doing so, he used the, the Rembrandt painting that is there in St. Petersburg as a way of, of understanding better the whole account there in Luke 15 of the, prodigal, or the return of the prodigal son. And in his book, he describes uh, the, the painting, of course, of Rembrandt. And the painting there, and perhaps many of you are familiar with it, even if you haven't traveled to St. Petersburg, is of the father in his beautiful robe, so to speak, standing there, and his son, the, the wayward son that had been gone and trashed everything that he had been given, is kneeling before the father and being embraced by the father. And Rembrandt paints, or Rembrandt uh, accents the, the particulars in the painting. And he says, you know, if you look at him, you'll see that, that his head is, is shaven like that of a prisoner who doesn't have really a name. He just has a number. And if you look at the clothes that he has on, he basically only has on sort of what Rembrandt or what uh, Nowen says, underclothes, just shabby-looking clothes. And as you look at his feet, you'll see that the, the left foot, the, the worn, worn-out sandal has slipped off and you see the back of his feet which are, are all scarred and dirty and the other foot which still has the sandal is all worn. In other words you, you see someone that is totally spent and he describes the man from his perspective and he says this, when the younger son was no longer considered a human being by people around him he felt the profundity of his isolation, the deepest loneliness one can experience. He was truly lost. And it was this complete lostness that brought him to his senses. He was shocked into the awareness of his utter alienation and suddenly understood that he had embraced on the road to death. He had become so disconnected from what gives life, family, friends, community, acquaintances, and even food, that he realized that death would be the natural next step. All at once, he saw clearly that the path he had chosen and when and where it would lead him, he had understood his own death choice, and he knew that one more step in the direction he was going would take him to self-destruction. Have you ever felt that low? Maybe not normally. But those are the conditions that are necessary, really, at least to some degree, for us to appreciate what it means to be under the shepherd that David speaks about in Psalm 23. Now, again, maybe only in degrees. And maybe the degrees are there because you woke up this morning or maybe yesterday morning, and you, you were confronted with this old friend of anxiety and worry. And there are certain things that are haunting you. And you realize that there are certain aspects of your life that you would really like to see under control. Or maybe you are single, 
and you desperately want to be married, and that last coffee date really didn't work out the way that you would like, and you really don't see any, any bright spots in the weeks and the months to come. Or maybe you are married, and you wanted to be married, but now that you're married, you're finding marriage to be really challenging. And your spouse does not behave the way that you would like him or her to behave. Or maybe you're someone who really wants to have children and they just haven't come yet. Or maybe you have other areas of discontentment, things that just aren't the way you would like and they wear on you. Or maybe you are serving some incredible idol and it is wearing you out because the master is cruel. Or maybe you're experiencing depression or some form of depression. Or maybe just you just feel like a failure. Whatever it is, whatever, whatever the, the, the particulars are within your life, and all of us experience these in varying degrees, in varying times, those are the things that we need to understand because those are the things that we bring to this shepherd who brings us into this incredible place of rest that only he can do. But you won't do it if you stand there and you say, I don't need this. It's an interesting fact to realize that within the world, which is what some, something like 7 billion people, that only about a third of that 7 billion people have any kind of connection with Christianity, with Christ. That means, in a way, that two-thirds of the world want nothing to do with the rest that David speaks about here in Psalm 23, want nothing to do with the rest that can be found in Christ and in Christ alone. Secondly, there is what I would call the consequences of gospel rest. In Psalm 46, the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. And then later on in that psalm, he says, be still and know that I am God. I think there are two basic possible consequences that can be experienced when you're by those still waters or by our, our enjoying that incredible pasture. The first is, and maybe this won't sound so much like a benefit, but being confronted with who we really are is a benefit to us in regards to this rest. Now, let's face it. We can live incredibly busy lives lives that consume us, consume our, our minds, consume every aspect of our lives, and we don't really have any quiet time, quiet time to reflect on what God is doing. But when we are still before God, when we are in the presence of our shepherd, all of a sudden, we might see things, see things in our hearts, things that have been going on in our minds that we've been kind of suppressing and pushing to the side. And next thing you know, 
we're in the realization that there are things in our lives that need to be changed. And maybe it's not major things, maybe it's small, but maybe they might be major. Maybe it may not be so much an issue of, of, of sin or of, of temptation, but it might be the issue of calling. Imagine being confronted with the Spirit and knowing that, you know what, I've got a neighbor that has been that has been part of my life for the last who knows how long, and I've ignored that neighbor. I'm not praying for that neighbor. I'm not spending any time pursuing that neighbor as a neighbor, right? Or maybe it's somebody within your work that, you know what, you would like them to maybe find another job, right? They just sort of irritate you, and it would be, it would be quite nice that they might get a promotion, you know, to a different part of the world, and God bless them that they would be able to find such a wonderful opportunity. But maybe God in the midst of that, of that still water is calling you to really reach out and be a friend. Or I don't know, maybe, maybe God has for you to be, you know, a missionary in Africa or in Asia or, you know, or again, another part of the city. I, I, don't, I don't know what it would be. I just know that when you're in the midst of, in the midst of our Lord on a shepherd, it's very dangerous. And when you're in that quiet time, you're going to hear things. You're going to see things through his word and through prayer that you would have never said or never experienced before. But then there's also that restorative side, right? He restores my soul. In other words, the gospel is all about restoring these people who are broken, who are hurting who are suffering. And again, it can come in so many, in so many different ways. And I find, and we'll talk in a moment about some of the different places that God can put us, but I find that when I just become quiet enough to see my surroundings, that I see the, the, the fingerprint, the, the hand of God within my environment, so, for example, when was the last time you got up, got yourself ready for work, you got on the metro or however you get there, you walk or whatever the case is, and you observed all the other people that are on that metro? And I know, look, sometimes when you get on the metro, right, the only space you have is about three inches, right? And the, I mean, you're so sardine into the crazy car, you just can't believe another person can get in and you you make another stop, and next thing you know, people are constantly coming in, and they're telling you, move back to the hall, or move back to the aisle, you know, and you keep moving, and I mean, there's no space. But the next time you're on there, whether it's that crowded or it's, it's relatively reasonable, just observe the people around you and ask yourself the question, what do you see in regards to God's creation? And you're going to see different faces and I think one of the beautiful things about Washington is you're going to see different races and people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of economic levels and social levels and everything else. It's all mixed there. And you can see people who got themselves up. And all they knew was that they needed to get to work. So they prepared themselves and they, 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 they washed their, their, their hair and maybe it's still wet and and uh, they look clean and neat and presentable, and they put on clothes. 
And if you look at the clothes, you realize somebody made all these clothes, all these different colors. Look at us today. How many of you have the exact same blouse or same shirt or same shoes on? Look around. Somebody creatively said, in the, because they were made in the image of God, I'm going to prepare myself and I'm going to dress myself in such a unique fashion. Even though, you know, like there's a lot of people that have this coat on somewhere, right? And, you know, I'm not the only guy wearing this shirt, but it looks that way. And all of that is a reminder that our God is so incredibly creative that he cares that much about the details. And that creative God is my shepherd. And I find that when I look at what we call sometimes general revelation, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The metro cars proclaim the work of his hands, right? And I'm thinking, this, this is how my Lord has provided. And it renews, it renews me in terms of realizing that this is an incredible place that I live, even though I'm, I only got three inches to myself, right? And, you can, and there are all so many other aspects of our lives where God is doing things that we often ignore. All right, the problem is, is that I have probably three sermons in front of me, but I only have time for one. <laughs> I actually have five points, and so there's no way in the world that you're going to endure much more of this. So I'm going to be... I'm going to be very quick and selective here, okay? I'm just going to tell you that because uh, in the last couple of years, I've had to force myself to watch the clock. And look at the clock, by the way. It's only right twice a day. So that clock, for someone like me, is a big problem, all right? Well, actually, it's a big problem for you. But we've got another clock up here that is saving you. All right. Let me just talk about... No, I'll just... I'll just, just briefly say this. You want to understand the place of rest that God has given to us, wonderful places. I was going to talk about uh, places like going to Puerto Rico. And have you ever been to Calibra, this little island outside of Puerto Rico? It's very inexpensive. It's a wonderful place. But Debbie and I occasionally will go there. It's like paradise in a way. The water is the perfect temperature. It's very Caribbean, and you have all the snorkeling and all that kind of stuff you could do, and it's just beautiful. Well, those are the, kind, those are the kinds of places that we like to rest in. But, you know, sometimes the only place that we really have to rest in maybe is our room, right? Or maybe the place wherever we live. Or maybe it's a park bench. Or maybe, look, Rock Creek Park, let me tell you. Rock Creek Park is a wonderful place to go. You, you cannot run at 6 or 6.30 in the morning. If you start at the zoo and you go south towards the Potomac, right? It's beautiful. Still waters. Deer. You know what I mean? It's just absolutely gorgeous, and it won't cost you anything except a little bit of time. Wherever it is, you want to recognize that that place, that park bench, that normal path that you walk on is a gift that God has given you. And for you, that's your quiet waters. That's your, that's your place of rest. That's all I'm going to say about that. Point four, 
I wanted to talk about when the rest is tested. And if you notice the psalm, he speaks a lot about that, about the valley of the shadow of death. And what you need to remember there is that your Savior understands well suffering. And he understands what it means for people to be consumed by anxiety and worry and all the issues and all the garbage that come our way. And he died for you. And he went to the cross. And he was betrayed. And he was abused and neglected and forsaken. And even by the, by the Father, as he hangs on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when you think about your shepherd caring for you, there's no one, no one that's more prepared, that's better prepared to do it than our Savior. And then the last point is this. Now, I'm really going through, I'm going through lots of stuff here really quick. Rawwich, this guy that was starting out, six or seven others left the Siberian prison and walked to India. Took a year, again, 4,000 miles. When they got there, they provide for us a picture, I believe, of what our ultimate rest will be like. If you, look at this, if you look at Psalm 23, you'll notice that it ends with verse 6. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Forever. And I believe one of the reasons why David accents that and why we need to end on that is because regardless of what's happening on this side of heaven, we know that ultimately there's this incredible experience that we will all, all of us in Christ, all of us who know Jesus will have. It will be yours. And it's called heaven. And I know that so often we don't really think about it because it seems like it's so far in the future, etc. But the Bible speaks about it a lot. Jesus said, I go away to prepare a place for you, a place for you. And so when I think about what David, how David ends, he ends not only having explained the present experience of what I call gospel rest, but he says there's that future that we want to not forget about. And so when Warwich gets to India with his friends, Having spent a year not sure if they would ever get there, he describes their response to being embraced by the Indian soldiers that had met them when they crossed the border. And here's what he says. We started to laugh and jig in restraining arms, going around in a crazy hopping polka we were both laughing and crying at the same time. I don't remember starting to dance, but there we were, the four of us, stomping around, kicking up the dust, hugging 
hugging one another and laughing hysterically to the blur of tears until we collapsed one by one to the ground. We sprawled out, repeating softly the words, we are safe, we are safe, we are safe. That's your hope. Day's going to come. You'll be jigging, jigging around or hopping and doing all kinds of crazy dances and laughing. And you'll be safe. You're safe now. You're safe now. But the day will come when we will experience heaven. And so my prayer for you and myself, my family, is that we would experience the depth of this gospel rest. That we would see our need. We would see our circumstances that draw us to Christ, which is such a wonderful gift. And in the midst of that, we would see the glory of our shepherd. And we would experience the fullness of what it means to have the Lord as my shepherd, where I do not need, I don't want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for giving us, even now, a time to experience your rest, to experience your presence. But I know that it can be a challenge for us, a challenge for me. And I ask, Father, that by your grace, you would enable us to embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand.